I don't really have any disclosures. And these learning objectives, I think they were posted somewhere online. So this is a picture of two doctors in 1988 in Africa. And believe it or not, the one on the left is me. And uh, that's in Liberia, West Africa. And the guy on the right is named Phil Fisher. Phil um, was doing uh, pediatrics in Congo. And uh, we didn't know each other at that time. We had no clue about the other person. We were both in Africa, and we both ended up doing research on malaria. Um, I was interested in documenting that chloroquine-resistant malaria was arriving in West Africa as I was there. Phil was studying something called congenital malaria, which is malaria of newborns. And uh, I have to say Phil did better than I. That's a long story. Um, but so I've been interested in biomedical research in faith-based settings uh, for quite a while. And I just, you might think this is obvious, but I just want to talk, uh, to start off by saying, well, what is biomedical research anyway? And here's a pretty generic but useful definition. Uh, biomedical research are studies. So they're, you, it's a study. You've got a plan. It's probably written out as a protocol designed to increase the scientific base of information about health and disease. And so that's really one category, gathering information about health and disease and analyzing that information. And then there's sort of another category, studies intended to evaluate the safety, effectiveness, or usefulness of a medical intervention. And that intervention might be, does a drug work or does a certain form of is one form of physical therapy better than another for this diagnosis, or, or whatever the intervention might be? Do faith-based, does faith-based healthcare and research do these two things actually go together? And um, you know, there's varying views on this, and some people would say no, they do not. They're like oil and water, and they don't mix, and they shouldn't mix. And there's others who say, well, absolutely, they're more like peanut butter and jelly. So, so um, I just want to say a few words about this. So the people on the oil and water side um, have some really valid points about, the, about performing research in a faith-based healthcare setting. And one of the, the valid concerns is that you're talking about a focus on science versus medicine. And these things are different. Medicine is the care of patients who are sick or who are preventing illness or you're, you're, you're dealing with some medical issue. Science is, in, is trying to learn new knowledge, and they're, they're just different enterprises. And uh, if your mission as a faith-based healthcare organization is to demonstrate the love of God and of Jesus through healthcare and to proclaim the gospel to people, you say, well, what does that have to do with research? We're not here to get new knowledge. We're here uh, to, to to tell people about Jesus by word and deed. And then there's research horror stories, right? So there's all those, how many of you know about the Tuskegee experiment? Or do I have to tell you about it? Only about half. So um, this was, gee, it's, not a century, but going on a century ago in the United States where a group of African-American men were diagnosed with syphilis and treatment was withheld so we could learn about the natural history of their illness. Uh, just that's an ethically horrible thing that was done. 
and it's and it's more recent than that. In recent decades, international multinational pharmaceutical companies going to Africa to study their drugs, for instance, HIV drugs, and giving thousands of people free drugs as long as the study lasted, and then leaving. And those people no longer had any access to any treatment for their HIV, but the companies had proved their drugs worked. So, so these ethical issues are real and major. And you know, as a faith-based institution, I don't want that to happen to my institution. We're here to show Jesus' love and, and uh, grace and power to people, not to be tarnished by ethical misbehavior. So, um, and then perceptions of community and even hospital staff. Well, you know, are the people we care that we're trying to reach just say, well, these people just came here to experiment on us and to work guinea pigs in their hands. I mean, what could be more antithetical to the mission of a mission hospital? And then finally, the, uh, another very valid issue is mission creep. You know, you're going to make us so much about science and knowledge and the sort of the hubris and human satisfaction that comes with that that we're going to stop actually doing what we're here to do. So these are all real concerns about research in a faith-based setting. However, there's another point of view about these things. And one is improve patient care. So, so typically, research in a faith-based institution in a limited resource setting is working on a common unmet medical need in that area. You know, typically people are not doing research into a exotic disease that doesn't exist in their setting. They're saying, you know, we're seeing a lot of patients with problem X and they're not doing well and we've got to figure out how to do better for them. And so that sort of motivation for research in a faith-based setting can lead to improvements in patient care and improved outcomes for, for the community. And then there are absolutely ethical concerns and issues in research. In fact, that's the ethics of research is a whole other session and topic to talk about. But, but properly done, research can demonstrate Christian ethics in action and um, can be an opportunity, another way to demonstrate the gospel. And then perceptions of community and staff, very important. But um, if, in fact, the research leads to improvements in patient care, then the perceptions of the community and the hospital staff may be very positive about research. And finally, research in just the way it's conducted can be a way to demonstrate the gospel. And I hope I'm going to tell you a few stories that hopefully will illustrate some of that. Underlying this debate about is research part of appropriate admissions is a theological issue I'm just going to touch on. And that is, you know, uh, what is mission? And there's a, a theological movement called prioritism, which says that what really matters in missions is preaching and uh, proclamation of the gospel. Everything else is ancillary and optional and of questionable relevance. And if that is your view theologically, then I'd ask, why are you even attending GMHC? But um, uh, then research sort of is just yet another thing that would be even more optional. But there's another view called holism, which says no, it draws largely from 
the Gospels, it says, well, Jesus spent a lot of his time healing people. He went into, Jesus went into health care. Uh, and uh, there must have been a reason for that. It probably wasn't completely accidental or ancillary. And um, he dealt with people as whole persons, body, soul, and spirit. And we should do the same too. And I'm not going to resolve that for you here in this session today. But just to say that um, if thinking uh, holistically about mission, uh, these are some passages that really speak strongly to the idea that meeting people's physical needs is part of mission and that uh, uh, we're called to do both word and deed, um, demonstration and proclamation. So enough theology. So in, in a faith-based context, my view is that research should do these things. It should aim to make progress against disease, and it should do it, uh, as I said before, about a, a disease that's relevant to the setting, common in the setting where there's some unmet needs, where we aren't doing well for all of our patients. Um, it should demonstrate love, grace, and mercy in action. I mean, the, the process of doing the research has got to be Christ-filled. It can't just be the outcome being good. It should emphasize the worth and dignity of individuals. It should demonstrate commitment to the community around the, the, the catchment area of the, of the facility. And it should bring a taste of the kingdom of God to everyone who's involved. And that includes the research uh, coordinator or nurse or staff. It includes the medical team. It includes the um, ethics committee that reviews the protocol. It includes the subjects who sign up and the the patients who decline. Uh, It should include everybody who's touched by it. Now, I'm going to tell you some stories. And the first one is about a guy named Dennis Burkett. How many people here have heard of Dennis Burkett? Oh, interesting. Not a lot of you. Okay, so Dennis was born in 1911 in Ireland. And his father was a county surveyor and an ornithologist. So an ornithologist studies birds. And at that time, there was a new technology in bird watching. And it was called banding. So if you see on that bird in the picture, he's got wearing two little bands on his legs. Uh, and those have been put there by a researcher. Uh, and this was a new technology that was being used to study the migration patterns of birds. And Dennis's dad was really into this. And he would cooperate with other people around Ireland and beyond and uh, go out and record, put bands on birds and record the numbers that were on that some birds' bands and, you know, an effort to study in a collaborative way uh, migration of birds. So Dennis went to Dublin and went to medical school at Trinity College. And while he was in med school, he became a Christian. And... Um, Uh, He trained in surgery in Ireland, and he was posted uh, in 1946 to Uganda with the British Colonial Service as a surgeon. And it was called a mission hospital, but the British government paid his salary. And he was there as as an employee of the British government. It was colonial times. It was a very different era than now. So Dennis, you know, he was just kind of the kind of person who would start to make lists and he started to, early on in his surgical practice, he started to keep records of how many hydra seals he'd seen and how those patients did. And he took an interest for a while in artificial limbs. And uh, it was just kind of something he liked to do. So in 1957, he'd been, he'd been now 11 years out. 
And he took care of a child with swellings in the angle of the jaw. And he had just taken care of this kid. And then he says, about two weeks later, I looked out the window and saw another child with a swollen face. It was like the same thing. And he wasn't a pediatrician. But he said, wow, what's going on here? I've never seen one of those in the United Kingdom, in Ireland. So he began to keep track and ask about this. And so he actually visited the records department of his hospital and, and got a project going where they went through all the medical records of kids and he found that jaw tumors were common in Uganda and that they were often associated with other tumors at unusual sites in children that came to his hospital. He thought, wow, this is kind of curious. You know, I, not, I learned nothing about this in medical school. So he concluded that these apparently different childhood cancers were all manifestations of a single hitherto unrecognized tumor complex. He synthesized sort of this observational data he had accrued, and he published a little report in a British journal. His report was entitled, A Sarcoma Involving the Jaws of African Children. So on the basis of that report, he won a research grant for 25 pounds. And now it was 1950-whatever, but uh, he used that grant very wisely. He found that a little money went a long way in sub-Saharan Africa, and actually that is still quite true. Um, And he got somebody to help him, and he got an old station wagon, and he drove around Africa. He was really captured by this question of what is this? And he just started visiting Clinics and hospital after clinics at hospital. And you can see the map on the wall there. Maybe you can see it with a lot of pins in it. And he started figuring out where do they see this tumor of the jaw and other unusual spots in children. Where don't they? And he gathered this geographical data. And he said there's a, by now he realized it was a lymphoma, not a sarcoma. And he said there's a belt. It only happens in certain places in sub-Saharan Africa. And he figured out that it was only between certain elevations. And what disease did that remind him of? Malaria. It reminded him of malaria, which only occurs at certain elevations in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And he said, maybe this is an infectious disease, this lymphoma. So he had this now passel of data, and he had an idea And he went to a medical conference in Britain, back home in Britain, in 1961 to present his data. And at the conference, he met a guy named Michael Epstein, who was a virologist. And he heard this radical, for the time, idea from this guy in Africa that maybe lymphoma was an infectious disease. And Epstein said, could you send me a a specimen of one of these tumors? Brickett said, sure. So he shipped him a specimen. And in 1963, Epstein and his partner, Yvonne Barr, discovered what we know as the Epstein-Barr virus from that tumor specimen that Dennis Burkett had sent to, to Britain. These days, its proper name is human herpes virus 4. And uh, Burkett's lymphoma, as it's known today, is really the first example in people of an in, uh, infection causing a cancer. Um, Dennis went on to partner with Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York to introduce chemotherapy for this disease. And today it's uh, widely recognized as a curable cancer of childhood. And it remains common in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, story two, Tom Thatcher. Anybody here heard of Tom Thatcher? Okay, nobody. Excellent. 
So Tom uh, is an American, and he was led to, um, he grew up in a Christian home. He was led to go uh, into missions as a medical student. And he, Tom is a fairly analytical person, and he was really attracted to become a neurosurgeon. But when he felt this call to become a missionary, he said, can't do that because who could use a neurosurgeon in Africa? There he was wrong, by the way. But um, he said, I better do family practice. So, so he, he signed up and did a family practice residency. And he and his wife, Rosie, who's pictured there, in 1988, they moved to rural Nigeria, where Tom worked in what's called a cottage hospital. And they did a thing called community health evangelism which even here at this meeting, there's meetings about this method of using medicine to reach communities um, for Jesus. So they did that for a couple of years. And, you know, Tom, a ton of malnourished kids coming into his clinic, and he started to keep some records about it. He, he uh, uh, you know, height and weight and, and uh, quashiorcor or marasmus and so forth. And in 1991, so just three years later, they moved to a city from the rural area of Nigeria to a city called Jos, which is about the middle of Nigeria, to this place called Jos University Teaching Hospital, or Juth. And the reason they moved there is the people at Juth had asked him if he would help them start a family medicine residency. And at that time, family medicine was not a thing in sub-Saharan Africa. And this was going to be, if not the first, one of the first such residency programs in Nigeria. And Tom said, yeah, I think I could do that. And um, so they're now living in a city. He and Rosie started saying, well, how can we use what we're doing here as a platform for ministry? It's not community health evangelism anymore. And they really saw their students, mentees, colleagues as a missions target. And so they started doing this thing called family life Bible studies, where they would have colleagues and medical students and residents come and nurses come and they would do studies about what does a Christian marriage look like? What does it mean to be a parent? And uh, what does the Bible say about that? And so forth. So at work, Tom got his residency going. I think he had three residents his first year. And, and early on, he was told, look, this is an academic place. Your, your residents are all going to have to do a research project. And that did not face Tom. He was like, oh, okay. That'll work. Then they called it a dissertation. All of his, all of his residents were going to have to do that. He said, "You know, I better teach them something about this." And he put together a class on research methods and statistics. And he found he kind of liked those subjects, and they came to him very naturally. And uh, so he ended up teaching year after year. Not and after a while, not only family residencies, residents, but residents from all sorts of different programs in the in the hospital a course on research methods and statistics. And in his clinic, he was seeing a lot of kids with rickets, uh, example pictured there. And uh, this really puzzled him because, you know, what the textbook said about rickets and what he had learned in med school was that it's a disease of vitamin D deficiency. But he thought, wait a minute, you know, vitamin D is made by sunlight hitting the skin. And here we are at the equator, and these kids spend all day running around outside with hardly any clothes on in the sun. Vitamin D deficiency? Really? He said. So um, something's going on here. So he, he, he talked to a Nigerian pediatrics colleague, 
no, well, pediatric endocrinology, I guess, who was, said, yeah, you know, you're right. It doesn't make sense. And so they said, what can we do about this? And they got in touch with that guy, Phil Fisher, whose picture I showed you at the start, who by now was in academic pediatric practice in the U.S. Tom had met Phil. And they said, you know, could you help us figure this out? And Tom said, yeah. Um, Phil said, yeah, here at our place in the U.S., I can get a lab person to run some vitamin D levels for you. So they, they got a protocol together, ethical approval. They drew a bunch of blood specimens. They got them to the U.S., and they found these kids with rickets. They all had normal vitamin D levels. So, well, that's interesting. So um, on the strength of that sort of initial bit of work, they got a research grant. And they used that to do a prospective study treating kids with rickets with calcium or vitamin D or both. And they showed that it was calcium that mattered in treating these kids. It was not vitamin D, which was the paradigm, the endocrinology paradigm at the time as you treated this disease with vitamin D. And they published their study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, And there it is from 1999. Now, Tom went on, actually has gone on to do research in rickets around the world and to get really deeply into this, into this subject. And he found that um, this was, turned out to be a good thing for his residency program, because actually it wasn't only Ricketts. Some of his residents were doing studies in this, that, and the other, and he helped them design and do prospective studies that had impact and that got published in places where people would notice. And his residency expanded, and you know, pretty soon he had, I think it was 12 residents a year. Well, not pretty soon, gradually. Um, he continued to mentor people, and he and Rosie lived in Joss until 2007, when he now teaches family medicine in the U.S. So when you talk to Tom about medical research as a missionary, what he says is this. He says, it fell in my lap. He says, it opened a lot of doors for me. It used my strengths, he says, and I enjoyed it, and it expanded my circle of influence for God's kingdom. Okay, I'm actually giving you four stories, so two more. This is uh, Dr. Russ White. Russ was born in Africa to missionary parents and from early on in life felt a call to be a missionary doctor, actually a surgeon. And he trained as a thoracic surgeon. While he was training, he got a master's in public health because he thought that might come in handy. And he went back to Africa, very interested in engaging in medical education. The time was the late 1990s. There was this movement to say, Missionary doctors really should be training others and not just going and doing it all themselves. I think you heard that here on Thursday night rather compellingly. But, but he understood that. So he went to a place called Tenwick Hospital in southwest Kenya where he had visited as a medical student. And, in fact, the reason he had trained to become a thoracic surgeon was there was so much esophagus cancer in Kenya. He couldn't believe it when he visited it. And, and he thought, oh, I need to learn how to take that out. So he trained to be a thoracic surgeon. But he found when he got to Tenwick and started setting up his practice, tiny little mission hospital, no ICU, and an esophagectomy is a serious operation. And um, he found that most of his patients were not candidates. They were, this is like this young woman in this picture here. She's in her 30s, and she's got severe malnutrition because she hasn't been able to swallow anything for quite a while because of her esophagus cancer. And these are her parents, and that's her uncle. And uh, she's too sick to undergo an esophagectomy. She won't survive. The, she can't recover from that. 
So he found about only less than 10% of his patients he could operate on. So he ended up partnering with me. I met Russ at a, at a conference in, in Kenya, and I heard about it. And as a gastroenterologist, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And um, through a series of really God things, we got a hold of some stents, which were a new technology then, and we figured out how to put them in without the things you supposedly had to have to put them in, and um, we treated a bunch of his patients with this new technology to relieve the obstruction of their esophagus and, and um, let them swallow. Pretty simple thing, actually. We weren't curing anybody's cancer. We were just palliating it, giving them some comfort and letting them eat. And uh, although some of his patients got so well after they got a stent that he ended up taking out their esophagus anyway uh, later on. And then some of those have come back and seen him with, because this is a disease of young people there with, their, with the children they've had since. But um, so it was a simple thing. But we collected information about it from the beginning. And we collected data about what we were doing. And we wrote a small report. We found that, um, Russ found that this had a huge impact on the hospital staff and the community that the hospital served. But it was a very positive impact because everyone knew about this disease. Everyone does to this day know about this disease there. Everybody knows somebody who died because they couldn't eat and they wasted away and they either starved to death or aspirated to death. And um, it's like, wow, those people over at that hospital are actually trying to do something about this. Uh, and so, it, and the hospital staff used to hate seeing these patients because they were young, they're suffering, and there was nothing to do. And now there was something to do to help them. So, um, through a further series of God events, we uh, a, a large manufacturer of stents started sending Russ stents for free, for about not forever, but for about five years or so. Russ published the world's largest series of esophageal stent placement, largest series to this day. And the team started to expand, and people started to get drawn in who were going to try and help us think about, well, how could we actually prevent this cancer, which would be a lot better than palliating it, but harder to do also. And um, so um, there are people from IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is based in France, some of the people in that photo there, some of the white people are from the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda. So we had some people get involved from elsewhere who had skills that neither Russ nor I had and that we needed if we were going to try and figure this out. And along the way, I mean, it's still a story in evolution. We've learned a lot. We've learned pretty clearly a couple of the important environmental factors that lead to this in, in East Africa, because it's not only Kenya, it's all of East Africa. Uh, we, we know the precursor lesion in the esophagus and how to visualize it with spraying Lugol's iodine in the esophagus there. And uh, it causes no symptoms, but if you find it, you can take it out through an endoscope and prevent cancer. Um, and we think now, in the last few years, we actually see a potential path to large-scale prevention of this cancer in East Africa. Now, we haven't proved it yet. We can't if it was the U.S., we would just do endoscopy on everyone at risk and find the precursor lesion. You can't do that there. There aren't enough endoscopes or doctors who can do endoscopy, not nearly enough. So we need a very low-cost, low-tech, highly accurate screening method. We think we know what it might be, but it's going to take some more years to really 
test it and prove it. Along the way, we needed more human capacity at that hospital to do this kind of work. And so, for instance, the hospital desperately needed a cytopathologist. And um, so Bernard, Bernard, who's pictured here, came from Kenya to live with us in Rochester, Minnesota for a year to take a cytopathology training course. And uh, Bernard had never been outside of Kenya. He arrived in, in Minnesota in uh, August. It was a beautiful, beautiful August in Minnesota. And Bernard emailed his friends at home, please pray for me. It is so cold here. <laughs> and, and, uh, but that's him in February snow blowing our driveway. So we, he survived. And, and you saw Carol Spears, who's in this picture, pr- telling some of this story last night about the growth of the residency and training programs there. We started an esophageal cancer research fellowship, and our first fellow uh, who's pictured there, Mike Machuro, is now head of endoscopy, head of research at the hospital. And he's, there's been a string of cancer research fellows there uh, who've, who've moved this work forward. Final story is a woman named Debbie Coates. Debbie is a nurse practitioner from from, uh, western Pennsylvania. She and her husband, John, live in rural Cambodia. And Debbie um, and John both work in community development. As a nurse practitioner, her work, of course, is medical. And she works in this little village clinic there. It's a government clinic, but the government had no health professional who could staff the clinic. They built the clinic, but there was no one to staff it. Until Debbie came along, she said, I'll staff it. So she staffs this government clinic. Very limited resources in this area. For instance, there's no electrical grid. If you want to do anything with electricity involved, you've got to get um, the commonest thing is to use a car battery. And then you have to put the car battery on a motorbike and take it to the city to get it recharged and bring it back. Okay? So it's pretty rural, agrarian, simple kind of place. Research, really, in a place like that? So Debbie saw, was seeing a lot of tachypneic infants in her clinic, and she said that a fair number of them would just die. And, you know, uh, this happened a lot. And she was thinking, what's going on with these kids? Now, she had essentially no diagnostic methods beyond her brain and her stethoscope. That was it. I mean, no lab tests. No imaging tests, nothing. But she said, you know, I see other people with nutritional deficiencies there. She has these incredible pictures of Casal's necklace, which is a sign of, of, thi- of uh, niacin deficiency. And, and uh, she, sees, she sees scurvy in her clinic, and she's a really good diagnostician. And she said, you know, maybe this is thiamine deficiency, maybe which is vitamin B1, which... Um, was described in Southeast Asia and is, in, 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 and is wet beriberi is a, is a disease of Southeast Asia. She said, maybe this is beriberi. And she started giving these kids, any kid who showed up breathing fast, infant, she'd give them a shot of B1. And uh, she, a nursing colleague came to visit her, and they decided to do a thing called a verbal autopsy study. So what this is, for those of you who don't know, is they just went around to the villages in the region and they talked to mothers. And they said, have you had a child die um, in infancy? A lot of moms said yes. And they said, was the child breathing really fast before they died? And a lot of them said yes. And so they collected data about this and they said, you know, 
there's a lot of kids dying breathing fast as infants in our area, and maybe it's beriberi. So she presented her findings at a CME conference, and as it turned out, Phil Fisher and I were at that conference. And by then, Phil Fisher and I worked at the same institution in the United States. And um, we said, well, that's really interesting, Debbie. We were a little skeptical. How could this person who only has a stethoscope in her brain really figure out whether this was beriberi or not? But um, we said, we, we'd love to try and help with that, figure it out. So um, we'll, let's put a little team together and let's, let's see what we can do. So um, the first step in the team was finding someone in Phnom Penh to be part of the team. That's the city, the capital city of, of Cambodia. And we said, we really need somebody who's going to help with things like getting ethical approval and some, infra- uh, some infrastructure help. And we found that. I didn't, we didn't find them. Debbie and John found that person. And that person helped shepherd a simple protocol through the National Ethics Committee. And then Phil and I recruited a, over time a series of medical students at our institution who were interested in getting involved in something like this. And they would go and work in Debbie's clinic, incredible experience, and do a research project or the next step in a research project and come back. So um, we learned some stuff about these kids who are breathing fast. Um, we we uh, uh, collected blood from them. Um, and we collected blood from all the kids their age who would agree in that part of uh, that region of Cambodia. I mean, uh, uh, Debbie and these medical students would go around to a village and say, you know, any of you want to give us some blood from your infant <laughs> to, to study this? Of course, there was consent and uh, it was all done quite ethically. And a lot of people said yes. They really wanted to help us figure out this out. And we found out that all the infants in that part of Cambodia were thiamine deficient. If you went by the American stand normal range, they were all rather severely thiamine deficient. Most of them were just running around. They looked okay, or they weren't running yet. They were sort of waving their arms and legs and, and, and uh, not sick. Um, but some of them, the levels were extremely low, like the lowest these labs, this lab had ever seen. And so we sent another student who brought up portable echo machine along. Oh, by the way, collecting blood and storing it is not so easy when there's no electricity. We, had, we bought a solar-powered freezer, which is how the specimens were stored. So um, another student went another time and took a portable ultrasound machine along and got taught before he went how to do the specific views of a cardiac echo and record them. And we were able to show that it was those kids with the extremely low thiamine levels indeed had heart failure that reversed dramatically in 48 hours after they got a thiamine shot. So yes, indeed, this, there was, this was beriberi. So then we started asking ourselves, well, how could you prevent this in this area? Because there's so many kids with this problem. Uh, and um, we d- tested some things. We said, what if you just give the mom um, uh, thiamine pills and is it, it, would it be excreted in her breast milk? And would that be enough to get the kid's thiamine level up to at least where they won't be sick? And we found out that actually thiamine is actively excreted into breast milk. And um, there's a ton of it in breast milk, even when you give it to a thiamine-deficient mother, which is fascinating because the moms were all deficient too. Um, but it's not enough to get the kid's level up. 
And so we said, well, what are we going to do? This, and is, does the mom have to take thiamine uh, pharmacologically during pregnancy? Is there a way we can alter the diet to just get moms more thiamine with food? And um, I could go on about this. But now, uh, the point where this work is at now is that some members of our team are part of now an international study group, Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, actually, and northern Thailand, funded by the Gates Foundation, working on this problem in Southeast Asia. Okay, I've told you four stories about research in faith-based healthcare. Did you notice any themes from these four stories? Dennis Burkett, um, Tom Thatcher, Russ White, Debbie Coates. Observation, what do you mean? Saw a problem and said, huh. Yep, yep. So fascinating. So, oh, I've, I've, seen, I'm, I've seen it, and I've seen it more than once. And what's going on? Now, it can be hard to do that in a mission setting, in part because it can get so overwhelming, the clinical load, that you have no time for a, that sort of interesting thought or even mildly creative thought because you're sleep-deprived, burnt out, just struggling to take care of patients, yeah. But, but you're right that... Um, Observation was is definitely a theme of those stories. Other ideas? Collaboration. Collaboration, yeah, say some more. Yeah, definitely. Collaboration. And good research, most good research, most impactful research takes a team. Takes a set, nobody has all the skills needed. I mean, to get started, sure, but... But, yeah, you're right. And so finding collaborators and uh, building a team that can work together, absolutely, absolutely. I think that, you know, everyone is a Christian working in a mission setting, but they published in high-level, you mentioned New England Journal of Medicine, they published high-level things that impacted the course of treatment from there out. Yeah, absolutely. So they... They, each of these per- people in their own way have improved the health of a population where they work. Yeah. It might be completely irrelevant to medical care in Louisville, Kentucky, but that's not what they're about. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's an imagination. What do you mean, imagination? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. There were other hands. Uh, it was partly touched on, but you involved national colleagues and oh, also yeah. you had the buy-in of the community. Absolutely. What an important point. Yeah, so this is not just the foreigners coming in and experimenting on us. Yeah, there's, there's team members from the, from the community, the, the, the facility, and in most of these cases, ultimately, 
at a national level. There's, there's national colleagues who, and oftentimes in a limited resource setting at the big university medical school in the, in the, in the capital, there are talented national colleagues who are starving for the opportunity to do this kind of thing. Yeah, so you are so right. You are so right. And, and if you're going to make progress and improve the health of a region, you need them. And, and, you know, they benefit from knowing you. So I thank you for that. John. Going back to Burkitt's father and banding and Burkitt writing <laughs> notes and stuff. Uh, first off, curiosity and asking why. But there's a guy named Steve Bickler who's a pediatric surgeon in San Diego who started off at the Gambia, but he spent his whole life improving children's surgical issues. He gives his talks and he says it's as simple as A, B, C, D. Always be collecting data. <laughs> so, fair enough, but I, what I would, this twist I'd put on that is that for all the people I talked about, this is just kind of, they're proficient and interested and maybe even have an inclination this way. In the case of Burkett, clearly, as probably inherited in his case. So, um, it's not necessarily for everybody, and it doesn't have to be. It's not like we're saying here you need to do this. No. Um, but for some of you, it's like, I like doing this kind of stuff. And, you know, that's beautiful. God's given you that, excuse me, God's given you that facility, that faculty. Fantastic. And, you know, we, we need all sorts of skills and talents. Other, other observations, themes. Thank you. Yes, it was it was God's work. And certainly that was our experience in Kenya, because there were things that just seemed we're not going to be able to deal with this or we don't have money for that or whatever. And God provided. I mean, if you hang around in mission medical settings long enough, you start to realize that happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Other themes. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, they networked, absolutely, and you're right. They met other people and we live in an age where that's easier than ever. But for all these people that's you know, it was it was face to face. Yeah, yeah. Thatcher. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great observation. So just being willing to be where God has put you. 
and keep your eyes open. Yeah. Just let's see if anyone else who hasn't spoken yet has a comment. Was there another hand back there amongst all of you? Yeah, passionate about it. And I would say all these people in their own way enjoyed what they were doing. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge burden to them that they, oh, somebody said, I've got to look into these tumors of children. No, that's not how Burkitt was. I mean, it was, yeah. But he, he had a passion for it, absolutely. Yes. Yes, beautiful. And he had equipped them all, all of them, with the ability to do this kind of thing. In some cases, they didn't even realize it, but um, but they were willing to use the gifts God had given them where He put them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. Yeah. If, uh, maybe not the first one, but the subsequent two. Uh, training others, whether it's the medical students or the cytopathologists. How do you, how do you train others to meet the need? Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. There's a lot of training that happens with this. So I'm just going to say that, yeah, I think you guys hit all these themes that I listed here. Curiosity and time, locally relevant problems. One thing we maybe didn't overtly say yet is start simply. These people all started simple, low cost, just observational. Often it was just case series, you know. Let's see. I think we're seeing a lot of this. Let's see. Is that really true? And some very simple demographics about the patients. I mean, that's a great place to start with a common unmet medical need. The team thing is very important. And medicine in many places of the world is a very hierarchical phenomena. Maybe not so much where you work, but in many traditional and hierarchical cultures, you know, the, I'll pick on surgeons, sorry, it's those of you who are surgeons. The surgeon is like God, and then, you know, there's the sub-people, his acolytes who are training with him or her, and then there's the nurses who get beat up on some, a lot of times, and then the medical students who are, like, quivering in their shoes and, and afraid to say anything, and the nursing students, and extremely hierarchical. Research is not like that. Research, you have a team... And everyone has a role to play that are different. But so, thank you. So, um, it can be hard for some missionary doctors to engage in this because they're used to being in charge, the boss, you know, what I say goes. And a research team often doesn't function very well unless it's much flatter than that. And the research coordinators can say, you know, I've been trying to enroll people in this project and it's not going well. And here's what I noticed about why. That's really important information. 
but that person has to feel like they're empowered and a part of the team, and it's just as much their thing as everybody else's. And the ethics committee is going to be the same issue. And so it's, it, it's a very different, a research team is a very different, a much flatter organizational structure. And that's a great thing in many health, faith-based healthcare settings to introduce that into the culture, to say we are truly a team. We're truly equals here. Everyone's playing a valuable role, and do, we do it together, and we keep meeting as a team. I think we talked about community engagement, outside partners. Funding I put last because it doesn't have to, often doesn't have to be there to start or doesn't have to require much to start. And it turns out, especially now, that people in the resource-rich world are very interested in helping with issues in the developing resource-limited world, especially um, if it's a common problem, and especially if there's an opportunity for people from the global north to make a significant contribution or partnership. So I'm just going to finish up by, by saying that there are benefits for mission healthcare workers in this work, and you may have noticed that in this stories also, that most of the people in the, that I told you about, in fact, all of them, their relational network expanded because of what they were doing in research. They got to know more national colleagues and mission colleagues and regional colleagues, people in science who were interested in it could help with what they were doing. I think I don't, I, of these four, I, the one I, I certainly never knew myself is Dennis Burkett, but I think all of them would have told you that they enjoy it. I know the other three would. That you're solving locally relevant problems, that, and for all of these people, this became an important source of job satisfaction and actually avoiding burnout. There are also benefits for the healthcare institution, the mission healthcare or faith-based healthcare facility. Better patient care, is, as I said, should be the goal of this research. It doesn't mean that the very first attempt to study it needs to immediately result in better patient care. That's probably not going to happen in many cases, but that needs to be the goal. Um, I've already talked about teamwork, relationships in new places. In all of these cases, the institution, the standing of the institution increased in the region because it became known for excellence and for moving, moving the ball forward a little bit in healthcare in their area. Um, it's helped to facilitate training programs. And I said a little bit about research culture, but I'll just, um, my, I think I'll end up with this that um, research culture is different than clinical care culture. And uh, one of the major challenges, in my experience, in doing research in a faith-based healthcare setting in a limited resource world is shifting the culture and creating a research culture. We've heard about curiosity, innovation. Some of those things just aren't all that evident in some settings. And so being able to foster those things learning some research methods or knowing somebody who knows the methods and can help. John said to me before we started, don't finish the study and then talk to a statistician. <laughs> Try doing it at the start. And uh, that's really good advice from John Tarpley here in the front. And, um, uh, you know, I see this playing out. My own daughter has a Ph.D. epidemiologist, and people contact me from uh, somewhere or other and say, you know, we're collecting data about this or that, and we're trying to figure out how to analyze it now. I think, oh, I should have called a little earlier. Uh, I don't say that. And then, and then I say, well, let me talk to Hillary, and maybe she could do it herself or connect you to someone who's 
who would love to get involved with what you're doing. Um, research ethics is a whole other topic we're not going to talk about today, but a very important topic. Um, but even there, if you're getting started, there's almost always going to be a national ethics committee. The hospital, if it's a hospital, mission hospital, will have a policy about this. Either they have, in some cases, their own IRB, but in more they're going to say, no, you're going to have to get permission from the National Ethics Committee. And that can be a years-long process, let me tell you. Um, but that's okay. You know, the process is part of the point. Um, team we've talked about, and meeting regularly as a team helps to really create a research culture, including the members of the team who aren't on site. Um, and so visits are very important. Understanding relationship with research participants. We're used to, in medicine, the patient comes to us for help, and we help them. In research, it's flipped. You go to your potential subject, and you ask them to help you by being in your study. And that is a key element of research culture that doesn't come naturally. And so once prospective study, you don't need that to worry about this if you're reviewing charts, but if you're doing prospective studies of patients, then understanding that and being ready to say, you know, I'm there for my subjects because they are helping me. And we're all as a team going to go above and beyond for these people. It's actually a very important and I think very gospel-type way of thinking about research. Commit to the health of participants. Tell the world what you've learned. We've just got three minutes. Anybody comments, questions? Yes. What do you mean accessibility? Do you mean access to medical literature? Yeah, um, yeah access is improving. So, um, Hinari, have you heard of Hinari? Hinari is a medical literature service provided by the World Health Organization, H-I-N-A-R-I. And if your country falls below a certain per capita income on the World Bank uh, listings, uh, your, your country gets free access to Hinari, and it includes hundreds of leading medical and scientific journals. So uh, there's, a, uh, there's a bit of an application process, but so that's a huge help. One of the, um, you can get abstracts for about anything online now with no library access. One of the things I do is because I have access to my U.S. Resource Rich Institutions Medical Library online. I actually live in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. But, but uh, one of the things I do all the time for my colleagues is get them articles because they, they say, hey, I really want to see the details in this particular thing. No problem. So that's one of the things I do as a team member is help with some of that. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, the temperature around the world with this particular disease, when it's endemic, as it is in East Africa, drinking scaldingly hot beverages is one of clearly emerged as one of the risk factors. But it's got to be more than that. Um, ingesting smoke turns out to be another one, and 
we think there has to be some genetics, but it's complex. And right now, uh, we have a collaborative East African uh, study group in five countries collecting a large number of DNA specimens to do what's called a GWAS study and see if we can try and understand the genetics of this disease in Africa. Yeah. Yeah, so it's critically important to have ethical approval. And it's always best to have that from a high-level, nationally recognized IR, uh, review board or IRB. And um, that often means having a national – and, again, we've moved now beyond just reviewing charts. That often the hospital itself can approve. Many – it's surprising how many faith-based hospitals around the world – have their own ethics committee now. And so something simple like reviewing a chart where there's no significant risk to, to subjects often gets approved easily and locally. And that's how in residency programs in mission hospitals, all the residents all need to do a research project. That's generally the level at which it happens. But um, for something prospective or interventional, assessing an intervention, you know, National approval is typically a good idea, and it means having a faculty member at the national med school who's part of your team. And I've already talked about how that's a good thing for everybody to do that, actually. Um, and um, a very uh, gospel-centered kind of idea. So, so uh, finding that person, connecting with them. Sometimes you connect with them through a collaborator in the north who says – Oh, disease X. Yeah, well, have you looked? There's so-and-so at the National Medical School in your capital has written a series about that. Oh, really? Okay. Let's, let's, let's meet up. Let's, all hands on deck. Let's figure it out together. You know? so, um, and then it can just be a laborious process. The National Ethics Committee in my country meets twice a year, and uh, um, they may not have time to review the protocol you submitted, this time, and um, there's a, often a lengthy back and forth about the protocol with many changes required and discussion about that. In general, it's wise to thank the Ethics Committee for their suggestions and take them. Um, uh, and um, um, so there's a lot more I could say about that. It's, not, it's, it's absolutely vital, and it's easy for it to become a frustrating process. But it's also an opportunity for gospel, is what I would say. So just to clarify, you would have to go through, uh, depending if you do cooperation in the U.S., through, of course, the medical institution in the U.S. side, but also the national institution. Thank you for asking that. Yes, so absolutely the national IRB, because the U.S. IRB is going to tell you, well, no one's actually getting enrolled here in Kentucky. You say, yeah, that's right. We're just receiving the blood samples or we're doing the statistics or whatever. And they'd say, well, okay, but we won't approve it till you show us the approval from Kenya or from Mongolia or wherever because that's where the subjects are getting enrolled. So absolutely you need national approval. Plus, would you want to be caught out not having national approval? No, no. Yeah. Okay, I think we're out of time. So thank you all for coming and contributing. <laughs>